Who's here? Grocery delivery! Oh. Well, come in. Set it down here. On the counter. Yes, thank you. Care to stay a while? <laughs> It's the second annual History Ghost Bump Halloween Special. Hello, you spooktacular people. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Happy Happy Halloween. Halloween! We are excited to bring you our Halloween extravaganza special, whatever you want to call it this year. You know, Denise, last year in the month of October... We didn't even have a 1,000 downloads, so when it came time for us to ask people for some stories, there wasn't a whole lot of listenership out there to get them from. I know, and now this year, they just keep pouring in. We had to finally set a deadline just so that we could kind of start wrapping things up here. (laughs) Exactly. So this is going to be a fun show. It's going to be the listeners scaring the listeners with their true, real ghost experiences that they have had in their lifetimes. And since we are a history show... We figured we should mix a little bit of history in as well. If you recall, in our last Halloween special, we did talk about the general history of Halloween, and then we talked about jack-o'-lanterns. For this Halloween, we picked three traditions or symbols from Halloween that we thought we would cover. We're going to bring you black cats, cauldrons, and bobbing for apples. So that'll be fun. We'll intersperse that with all of the scary stories. And another neat thing about this year is those histories, instead of being done by us, were done by part of our research crew. Exactly. So this really is your guys' show. We're just (laughs) sitting here talking and uh, reading stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. Denise, you think we should light a little bit of a fire? Inside your office? Sure. Whatever. (laughs) I'm open for anything. Let's just set the office chair on fire. (laughs) Well, you want a new one. I told you you could get it the other day. No, instead she's going to set her office chair on fire just to get the new one so that she has to get it. All right. Let's (laughs) gather around the fire pit, everybody, because that's the best place to tell your ghost stories. Absolutely. This first story is from our listener, Natalie. This starts with my grandma before I was born. 
She lived with us at the time, and she was leaving on a trip when she heard a little girl crying and asked her not to leave. My grandma told her that she'd be back soon and to not be scared because my mom was going to be there with her. At the time, she thought it was my older sister. She saw that little girl had a rope around her leg, and she angrily woke up my mom, who was in the other room, asking her why she tied up my sister. But my mom was confused because my sister was asleep next to her. My grandma later saw the girl again and told her not to be scared, and the little girl said that she wouldn't because my mom would take care of her. One of our previous managers told them that there was a little girl named Maddie that lived in our building whose mom would tie her by the leg in one of the rooms. The little girl died there after her mom failed to return after overdosing on the street. At least that's what they think. The details are a bit fuzzy because this happened during a time when our neighborhood was overrun with gang activity, so things like this happened a lot. I personally can't confirm this, even though I've tried to look for proof this little girl died here. My sister later became friends with the, quote, ghost girl and started to seclude herself. She would know where all the missing things were and she would play with the crystal ball my grandma had. At first, my mom didn't think much of it until my older brother cried because my sister wouldn't play with him. My mom asked why. My sister told her, because Maddie doesn't want him to. My mom got scared because she didn't know a Maddie and told her to play with my brother, and if Maddie was her friend, then she wouldn't mind playing with both of them. My mom has had many encounters with ghosts and evil spirits, so she didn't want my sister around Maddie if she was going to be bad news. I was born later, and my mom was so paranoid about Maddie that she never left me alone. I think this is why I never saw her. A few years later, our manager, not the same one that told them about Maddie, told my mom that her niece was playing with her daughter when her niece ran out of the room with a bleeding scratch on her face. She called for her daughter to ask why she did it, but she said, it wasn't me, it was Maddie. They sent her cousin home. This happened many times, and the little girl would often leave with cuts or bruises in the shape of hands. They would reprimand their daughter, but she would always say it was Maddie. One day, her father got home late and was watching TV. The family had gone to church to celebrate the Virgin Mary's birthday, something very common in our culture, and out of the corner of his eye, he saw a girl in this white dress peeking into the room. But when he looked at her, she would hide behind the wall. He called his wife and asked why she left their daughter home, and she said that her daughter was with them at church. He saw the little girl again and this time got up and followed her to his daughter's room, but there was no one there. He called out, Maddie, I'm going to church, and if you're still here by the time I get back, I'm going to run you out of here. After that, no one saw her. It wasn't until after my dad heard the story that he told the manager that they had the same ghost haunting them. I think that Maddie was just a lonely little girl that she wanted to experience a childhood she never had. Maybe she just didn't know how to have more than one friend. I hope she's moved on and that she has found peace. Same here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, that was, oh boy, I just, it always amazes me when you hear stories about children ghosts. It's like, what was that? Was that really this little girl? And just think, what a horrible life she had to live. And then if she would be stuck here in eternity, too. Yeah. Well, and being tied up, I mean... It, it does happen, but I can't imagine tying your child by the leg in the room like a... Well, I wouldn't even do that to a dog. I was about to say like a dog and just leaving her while you were gone. This next story is from Leanna. In October 2009, I was a journalism student and an editor of my college newspaper. Since it was going to be the Halloween issue, I figured a paranormal investigation article would be fun for the website and newspaper, so... 
I researched a bunch of paranormal investigation crews and found one that I preferred and saw that was more seasoned than the other groups. They thought the collaboration would be cool. So I researched the surrounding areas and found a place I wanted to investigate. The problem was the private property was so secretive I could not find an address or point of contact. In a fit of frustration, I yelled, Does anybody have a Yellow Pages book? Of course, nobody had any of those, so I went about my day. I got out of the newsroom at about 1 a.m., and the door stopped as I was opening it. I looked down, and there was a tattered yellow book of the area that I was looking for. Shocked, I looked at my friends and showed them what I'd found. Another writer had told me that she had seen that book inch closer and closer to that door throughout the day. That night I went to bed, and I was awoken to the feeling of my blanket being pulled from behind me, and I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. The only words I could muster out were, get out, get out, get out, in a slow and whispery, raspy voice. After the third, get out, I was able to move. After all the research and experiences, sadly, we were not allowed to visit the property that I worked so hard to find. So we went to a favorite haunted theater that the paranormal group knew had a lot of activity. I wrangled up the only other writer brave enough to attend the investigation. Armed with my voice recorder, digital camera, video camera, we were ready to go. Immediately when I entered the building of the theater, my video camera battery went dead. I just charged it, so that was a loss. But I still had my voice recorder and camera. As we go up the stairs to the balcony, I didn't hear it then, but after listening to the playback, I heard a man say, I see you, I see you, I see you, like it was a song. Still creepy, but I didn't know it was there, so I was fine. We go up to the top and hear some backstory about the theater, and I visit my friend who's at the front row of the balcony on the left-hand side. The leader of the crew, Steve, told me it was time to go downstairs. I knew I shouldn't have crossed the center of the balcony, but feeling a little rebellious and slightly dangerous, I went there anyway. As I walk along the front row of the balcony and pass the center, I feel a hand clench my throat, and my voice recorder caught the sound of the heavy breath of a man. I coughed, but I didn't feel fully threatened. Stupid, I know. Outside the projection room, I cross the door and feel three fingers tickling my backside. Mind you, it was pitch black and I couldn't see anyone around me. I call out to see where everyone is and no one is near me, not even 20 feet. I told Steve what had happened to me. He chuckles and tells me that years ago, the old manager of the theater would take young, unsuspecting girls who are interviewing for a secretary position to the projection room and rape them. That made me feel a little uneasy. Days later, as I'm writing my article for this issue, I experienced a lot of difficulty. My computer kept shutting off as I was typing, and it would not save what I had typed. After what had to be about the fourth or fifth time I wrote the article, my computer kept flashing like it was threatening to shut down. Frustrated and tired, I yelled out, Please, I'm just going to write this one thing, and once I send it, I am done. The flashing stopped, and I was allowed to click send. That was the last thing that happened to me. I will never forget that experience. I had a chance to visit with Leanna, and she expanded a little bit more on this story, and I want to share some of her thoughts with you. After that happened, just saying that I wanted to do a little story about that, I, when everything started to happen, like things, and this is actually what I wrote was the watered-down version. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, there was feelings of always being watched in my bedroom. Actually, if you remember reading the story, remember when I got choked on the balcony? Yes. Side note is later on, somebody had taken pictures of 
the balcony from the bottom floor from around the stage. And one of the pictures captured this huge burly man in like a worker shirt, like a blue shirt and a kind of like a crew cut haircut. And he's hold, like gripping onto the edge of the balcony front and center, looking at everybody. Whoa. Full apparition. I kid you not. After that, I was like, that was a man that touched me. It's easy. So after, yeah, I just try not to tempt spirit at all. (laughs) And I think that story very um, just, yeah, it just really scared me. Actually, during that investigation, there was a medium there who was telling me that I was sensitive. Like I had the same, very similar Mm -hmm. abilities. (laughs) And I was like, nope, not doing that. Like, because <laughs> if, if you're opening yourself up, it's just, it's scary. And I don't like that. Like, she had me go to a certain spot and she goes, what do you feel here? And I'm like, tightening in my chest. Why? I'm like, but that could have easily been me walking upstairs. <laughs> and yeah. she goes, somebody was stabbed right here in the chest, right in the spot. I'm like, I'm going to walk away now. <laughs> she's telling me like you have an ability i'm like i don't want this go away yeah i mean because you just never know who you're gonna be talking to exactly and i don't want any of that happening like who knows who what's out there and who knows who can influence whom we had expected maybe an orb or two sure but on the little viewfinder it showed like a full man like a and a huge guy he was pretty tall because we're kind of far away I was like okay I'm good I'm please leave me alone mister yeah did you know anything about like where he would have come from from what I know was that he was a foreman for the building okay and he just kind of was so dedicated to the to that that spot that he had worked for so long that wanted to go where he felt like he was being he was taking care of it he was the caretaker. Sure. He just um, so, was kind of yeah. frightening. <laughs> I just, after that, I was like, that man is a very scary man. I'm going to go away now. I don't blame you. I'd want to get away from that as well. Yeah. He didn't seem, nothing that I felt in there seemed evil. It was just kind of like they were humans. They were just being themselves. And that's basically it. You were just interacting. But I don't know, getting sexually assaulted by a ghost was kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, that's that's never cool. I mean, it's not cool for that to ever happen, period, much less that. Yeah, it was just kind of like, at first I thought, oh, it's silly, like somebody's being goofy, whatever. I guess I'm part of the club. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then I just realized, wait, nobody's around me. Mm-hmm. That's weird. And yeah, they told me the backstory about that ghost and who he was and kind of people the kind of people that he targets so i was like oh well thank you <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I have you no lucky? idea what to say to that <laughs> um but yeah i just kind of walked away and just hoped it didn't i hoped anything didn't follow me because i had already had so many experiences i was done i was like i'm i'm fine and i still to this day i take to just talking to it if there's something around me or if I feel something around me I brush it off or I talk to it if it's not leaving me alone Mm -hmm. because you know something happens everywhere so 
This next story is from Allison. Hi, ladies. Thought I'd share this story with you about what happened in a house that I shared with a friend roughly about 15 years ago. At the time, we were in a terraced house which had been built sometime in the 1800s to house the workers of the nearby railway. My friend at the time had a steady boyfriend, so more often than not, I was on my own in the house, which didn't bother me as I'd lived on my own in an apartment before. I had a pet cat called Ziggy, who was an indoor cat. She was a pedigree, and cats often went missing around our way, so Ziggy didn't go out of the house. One night I was on my own, watching a movie. My friend was staying over at her boyfriend's when Ziggy came running into the sitting room where I was and hid behind the sofa. She stayed behind there for a short while, then slowly inched out and kind of looked towards the sitting room door. I assumed a neighbor's cat had come in, as I sometimes leave windows open without having to worry about Ziggy going outside. So I went to investigate and found no windows or doors open or any stray cats in the house. She kept sticking her head out and then hiding back behind the sofa. After about 40 minutes, she was brave enough to steadily walk back towards the door, but then something made her jump and she ran straight back behind the sofa again. To be honest, after a while, this did begin to freak me out a little. So I went and sat on the second or third stair, kept calling her name to come to me as it was time for bed. I did begin to lose my patience as she would not come out of the sitting room. In the end, she did come to the foot of the stairs where I sat and just looked up past me to the landing. There were about 15 stairs up to a small landing which turned left, then went up another three stairs to the two bedrooms and a bathroom. She just sat there staring over my shoulder. Don't know why I did it, but I leaned to one side to block her from seeing whatever it was she thought she could see to which she then moved to the other side to see past me. Now, this did really, really freak me out. I took a deep breath and telling myself not to be scared and repeated to myself, there's nothing there, there's nothing there, and turned round, of course, there was nothing there. I managed to grab Ziggy and ran up the stairs. She was rock solid. I'd call it scared stiff. As I ran, she then started to shake and then wet herself. I dropped her as I got to my bedroom. She ran straight under my bed and refused to come out. I don't know what she saw, but she stayed under my bed for three days, refusing to eat or drink. She always slept on my bed on the pillow next to me, but for those three nights, she didn't move out from under the bed. About five months later, we got a friend of ours to move in with us to help pay the bills. We converted one of the downstairs rooms for her. After a week or so, she admitted she didn't like being in the house on her own and thought she heard movement on the stairs at night when we were all asleep, to which my other housemate admitted nearly every night she was in her bedroom She heard footsteps on the last three stairs, but thought it was because she was on her own in the bedroom for the first time ever, and her imagination was working overtime. We had a radio in the bathroom. One day I came home from work, and one of my housemates said someone had left the radio on all day as it was on when she'd gotten home from work. None of us remembered leaving it on. Next day, we were all about to leave for work when my other housemate remembered something she left in her bedroom. I ran up the stairs to collect it for her. Upon getting up all the stairs, I could hear the radio playing. Now, I know for certain I had turned it off, as it was playing a song I really didn't like, so couldn't wait to turn it off. But when I got home later that night, my housemate told me the radio was on again. When I went upstairs to change my clothes, I could hear the radio playing. When I'd finished changing, I went downstairs and said to my friend, You're a fine one to complain about leaving the radio on. It was just on. She turned to me and said, Very funny. No, it's not. I turned it off. Don't try to wind me up. Later that night, we were all in my bedroom trying to fit some new blinds over the window when all of a sudden the radio in the bathroom came on full blast. It was so loud the sound was distorted. The three of us just stared at each other. Not too long after that, we decided to move out. When moving day came, one of my housemate's friends came to give us a hand. On locking up for the last time, she turned and said to us, Don't know what it is, but I had a horrible feeling that something nasty had happened on the landing in your house. Glad you've moved out there. Needless to say, none of us ever went back again. 
Wow, that would be quite the experience. I think I would have moved out as well. I would have too. It's bad enough when you've got your cat getting creeped out and then you've got the the radio coming on. And, you know, when a radio comes on full blast, that's startling enough in and of itself. The fact that it just did it on its own. Right, and that the volume was changing, so it wasn't just Mm. like an alarm or something tripping it or something. And it was almost as if, because it seems like they were going back and forth about, you know, you're leaving the radio on, no, you're leaving the radio on. It was almost like the ghost was saying, I'm going to prove to you that it's not you guys doing it because who of you is going to turn a radio on full blast that it's so distorted you can't even listen to it? Exactly. It's amazing what animals feel. We have another one of those stories coming up later. Yes, we do. Another symbol of Halloween is the black cat. This research is by Carbon Lilies. One of the lasting symbols of the Halloween season is that of black cats. But why would these seemingly innocent animals be connected to the creepiest time of the year? The ancient Egyptians believed that all cats were divine creatures with magical powers and as such, worthy of being worshipped. Sacred cats were kept in a special sanctuary and tended to by priests who would watch them day and night looking for omens and prophecies of things to come. Every little twitch or move of a whisker could be interpreted as a prediction of the future. Cats were also believed to prevent the spread of disease. This was no doubt due to the fact they hunted the vermin, which even in that day were seen as carriers of illness. So great was their reverence that the peoples of that time told tales of a cat-headed goddess called Bast, or Bastet in some records. She would give great blessings to those in her favor, but her wrath was so great that she was one of Ra's avenging deities, who would punish the sinful and any enemies of Egypt. Cats were Bast totem animal. It was the Druids who first began associating cats with dark forces. Oftentimes, a cat will exhibit strange actions like seeing something that is unseen or batting at nothing in the air. This, coupled with their amazing ability to see well in near darkness, has created the myth that cats can see spirits or ghosts. They believe some humans, through use of evil powers, were able to shapeshift into cats. Many cats were burned during Samhain to rid the world of this devil. During witch trials, cats were often tortured and killed by Christian Puritans along with supposed witches. Some thought that witches had this ability to change shape into a cat. For a long time in Europe, pagan religions such as witchcraft were the dominant belief. These religions were tightly associated with the animals of nature, including the cat. During the rise of the Christian religion in Europe, the church decided that witchcraft was evil, and since they attributed cats to witches, cats were deemed evil by association. Cats were considered witches' familiars. A familiar is a low-ranking demon assistant to a witch. Although they could be any color, the connection to these cats being black is thought to stem from witches working their magic at night, on top of the fact that cats are nocturnal hunters. The cats would appear dark no matter which color they actually might be. Since the time of primitive man, black was a color associated with the night, a time of day they truly feared. That association persists to this day with some people. There are many superstitions surrounding the black cat. A black cat crossing one's path by moonlight means death in an epidemic. If a cat crosses your path while you're driving, turn your hat around backwards and mark an X on your windshield to prevent bad luck. If a black cat walks towards you, it brings good fortune. But if it walks away, it takes the good luck with it. A kitten that is born in May will be a witch's cat. A black cat seen from behind foretells a bad omen. If you find a white hair on a black cat, you'll have good luck. A strange black cat on your porch brings prosperity. If a black cat crosses your path, you will have bad luck. If a cat crosses your path, you will have good luck in England and Australia. King Charles I of England owned a black cat, and the day it died, he was arrested. 
An old sailor's legend said that meeting cats in the shipyard meant an unpleasant voyage of storms or other bad luck. In Scottish folklore, a fairy known as Cat Sith, a giant black cat, was believed to have the ability to steal a dead person's soul before the gods could claim it. This led to the creation of a night and day watch called the Late Wake, where friends and family would guard their deceased loved one's soul using catnip and jumping around a lot to scare off the soul stealers. In Japan, the Maneki Niko, beckoning cat, is considered a symbol of good luck. In Russia, their Russian blue breed of cats are supposed to be good luck as well. In Latvian tradition, black cats embody the spirit of Rungus, a god of harvest, which is good luck for farmers to have around. In Babylonian folklore, a curled-up cat on the hearth is seen as similar to evil serpent, thought to have nine lives, so aligned with the symbolism of nine, a lucky number. In the 17th century, there were witch burnings. Some believe black cats are witches in disguise. During the witch-burning era of the 17th century, witches' cats were put into baskets and burned alongside the witches. A cat on a grave meant that the buried person's soul was in the possession of the devil. And if two cats were fighting on a grave, this signified the devil and the defunct person's guardian angel fighting for his or her soul. Fishermen's wives kept black cats while their husbands went away to sea. They believed that the black cats would prevent danger from occurring to their husbands. To meet a black cat at midnight is to meet Satan. In Celtic regions, the Celts believe to kill a cat brings complete misfortune, while to tread upon its tail is also considered unfortunate, but in a less degree. If a black cat suddenly abandons the house of its masters, there will be a great disaster in that house soon. Seeing a black cat in your dream could represent bad luck or a warning of something unfavorable that might take place in your life. In Egypt, killing a cat in Egypt was a heinous crime punishable by death. When a household cat died, mourning rites were performed for it. Stray cats were treated with honor and fed, and the household cat was allowed to share the family's food. Cat amulets were produced, and elaborate cat-sized sarcophagi were crafted for cats who had died, who were often embalmed as humans were. This next story is from listener Conrad. I actually saw a ghost a long time ago, so I know that they're real. The ghost that I saw looked like an actual person, but just a bit transparent. One morning I woke up and saw this man standing at the foot of my bed. He was dressed in a checkered flannel shirt, blue jeans, and he was wearing a wide black belt in his pants with a square buckle. He had his hair parted to one side. As soon as I woke up and sat up in my bed, he saw me and said hello in a rather deep voice and then quickly vanished. There has to be other worlds or dimensions, spiritual realms, or whatever you want to call it. I also know that some of these beings know our future, and people who can tune into these beings can tell us our futures. I've gone to many psychics and tarot card readers over the years, but there was one woman I went to who had an exceptional talent for connecting with the other side. She told me of many things that all came true. Some of these things she told me about came true rather quickly, and other things came true nine years later. The psychic woman even told me the names of the people I would meet, and she even gave me the different correct spellings of these people's names. I've realized that God most definitely has a plan for our lives, but everything is not etched in stone. God also gave us a free will so we could decide things for ourselves. This certainly can be a very strange world that we live in. I saw this ghost when I was a child. At about this time, my dad had bought a Ouija board, and we were all playing on it. Dad was also practicing meditation regularly at that time, where he would try to empty his mind of all thought. Dad had an out-of-body experience and was having strange dreams at this time as well. 
I'm inclined to believe that my dad may have done something to encourage some paranormal activity. The atmosphere was getting a bit uncomfortable in that house where we were living. I had a strong sensation that I was being watched quite often, and I heard strange noises. Fortunately, we moved out of that house and nothing seemed to follow us, or at least as far as I could tell. I currently read tarot cards, but I would not want to use a Ouija board. I have good suspicion that they do open up spiritual doors. Better left alone. So next up, we have Atticus. And first, I want to ask you, is that your real given name, Atticus? It is, actually. <laughs> that is a terrific name. I absolutely love it. You should be writing books. Are you writing books? Well, I'm actually writing right now a little bit, and I'm trying to put together a book. I've always loved writing. so That's an author's name. <laughs> I think so. I'm glad you think so, too. <laughs> well, you sent Denise and I an incredible true story about some real haunting stuff that's happened to you, and I'm uh-huh. not going to share any of it. I want you to just go ahead and share it with the audience because I don't want to ruin any of it. But this is one of those stories that made me go, whoa. So why don't you go ahead and tell us from the beginning when you moved into the house that you're in and everything. Uh, I was coming home from Idaho and uh, I kind of just decided to take a scenic route back home. And as I was driving, something ran in front of my car and I crashed on the side of the road and I couldn't get my car to start, but luckily there was this really nice polygamist family that was living nearby and they asked if they could help me out. So they gave me a ride down to the gas station and where I called my fiance and then um, he took me home and then we kind of just stayed in touch for a couple of years and then we were getting sick of living in the city. So we asked if they knew anyone who was selling any property near them and they didn't know anyone who was, but they said that they were. So we went out and looked at the property and we just immediately fell in love with it. You know, it's just gorgeous. We decided to build a home there. And so it was built in about a year and a half. And at first things were just, you know, normal. Nothing was too crazy, but slowly things started coming up that we couldn't find explanation for. Like one night we were in bed and I was up in bed and Jake was down in the kitchen and we heard something break in the dining room. And so I went downstairs and met up with Jake and we went into the dining room and the chandelier had popped a bulb. And so we were like, well, that's weird. Like all of the wiring's brand new. So we kind of just wrote it off as an accident. We don't know. Sure. And then we went out grocery shopping one day and when we came back, the doors all up in the top floor of the house were all open. And so we thought that was weird. Because usually you leave them shut. doors don't open themselves, you know? Yeah. And so things just started slowly building up. And one night we were laying in bed. And I think this is around 2 o'clock in the morning. And we heard a cannon. And so we look out the window and we see a man kind of just down in the garden below and we're like, well, maybe it's one of the family members from who we're living next to, you know? And so, except um, for that it's two o'clock in the morning and you're going, yes, what are you doing in our garden? So weird. It was the strangest <laughs> thing. And so uh, I'll, I remember looking out the window and seeing the glimmer of a belt buckle 
Uh-huh. And um, so we were like, well, what do we do? So we just kind of crawled back into bed and we didn't sleep because we didn't know who it was. But we were, And if it was our neighbors, we didn't want to call the police and, sure, you know, potentially. Yeah. Anyway, then the next night, uh, Jake was out. I was in bed again and I could hear footsteps down the hall. So I called Jake. Is that you? And the footsteps kept coming and uh, they just stopped right outside the front of my door. And I could see the feet being silhouetted into the room. Does that make sense? Yes. Like I could see footsteps under the door. Yeah, sure. And, it's kind um, of a shadowing. Uh-huh. And then I heard the front door open and then close, and then they were gone. And so we, this when I you don't grab know a baseball bat? Or? Yeah. So it, that was one thing that really freaked me out, because I still don't know if that was someone in my house or if that was a ghost. Sure. I don't know. The next day, we hear a cannon in the daytime, and so... We go and meet with the family who we bought the land from, and we ask if anyone had been on our property previously, and they said not that they know of, and they're like, well, what did they look like? And I was like, well, it was really dark, and it was kind of hard to tell, but they were wearing a hat and like a long trench coat, and he had a mustache. And so he points to the picture on the wall, and it's the guy who was down in our garden, <laughs> and it... It was apparently their great-grandpa, Ezra. Wow. So, I, Right? It's crazy. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and so it was the man that we saw, and then uh, we asked about the cannon being fired, and they said, well, that's what he would do to warn the family of wolves or foxes that could potentially eat their chickens and stuff, so to be sure to lock up tight. One night I heard a crash in the kitchen, And so I go down to see what it was, and there's nothing there. So I just grab a glass of water, turn out the lights, and start to head back upstairs, and I trip over something. And it it felt round. It almost felt like tripping over a bowling ball. (laughs) But it didn't roll, nothing like that. But I clearly tripped over something in the middle of my kitchen. Nothing is in my kitchen that I could trip over. And so I turn on the light, and nothing's there. So I leave the lights on, run back upstairs and tell Jake what had happened. And he's like, you know what? I bet you tripped over a cannonball with everything that's been going on. It has to be a cannonball. And so we decide to ask the ghost to, you know, just respect us and we'll respect its space and stuff like that. And um, nothing too crazy has happened ever since then, except maybe a friendly pat on the back and the sound of a distant cannonball. I tell you, the thing that made me go, whoa, is because you tripped over something that wasn't there. So it was like it had physicality, but you couldn't see it. I mean, it's just bizarre. I know. Well, I thought I was going crazy until I heard the podcast the other day about Gettysburg mm-hmm. and how they had tangible bullets, you know. And so I was like, well, maybe I'm not crazy. Well, your story is exactly what I was thinking of when we were recording that. I went, you know what? This goes with Atticus's story because they had something physical in their house, too. Yeah. So I'm glad that it's matching up because I've never heard of anything like that before. And Mm -mm. what would have been really bizarre is if you turned on the lights and the cannonball was sitting there. Oh, my gosh. I would have probably freaked out. (laughs) Now, we're moving. Tear it down. Burn the house. Forget it. If it's our dream house, we're out of here. (laughs) 
So you haven't really had anything else happen other than just occasionally hearing that cannon in the distance going off? Yeah, nothing. Hmm. Like the doors have stopped, no more light bulbs being broken, no tripping over cannonballs. (laughs) I guess they just wanted to trip you once and got a good laugh and said, okay, we're done playing with him. I guess so. Wow. Do you know, was the cannon, was it like a little cannon or a full-size cannon? That seems like such a weird thing to fire off to warn people. I know. I have no idea, but it makes sense. To me, I guess you just have to see the land because it's like acres and acres and gotcha. there's just colonial houses all built. So I could see that it's a good way instead of having to run to house to house to tell everyone. But Well, it's really neat that that, and I love how you put it, a, a nice little polygamist family helped you during that accident and helped you to build your dream house. That's phenomenal. Well, who would have guessed, you know? But <laughs> no. I mean, you find good people in the world. Well, Atticus, I want to thank you and Jake for listening to the show and being fans. We greatly appreciate it and for sharing your story. Well, thank you. We love listening to you guys. This is one of those stories that really got me, Denise, because here we have something that is physical, although you can't see it, but it was physical enough that he tripped over it. So it wasn't like some transparent thing that he saw and passed through it. He couldn't see it, but he tripped over it. I know that kind of creepy and that almost goes with yours ideas of like the the two dimensions where he might have crossed into a dimension a little bit to get something physical rather than it being like a residual or something that is very creepy you know it'd be interesting to find out is how far away that cannon was that they would fire off to warn that there were wolves in the area and to see would that be about the area where the cannonball would land or you know i don't know how the cannon fired did it fire cannonballs did it just make a noise And would that have been where they would have landed? So it's like it's coming through the air and bam, it lands in your house. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, me either. This next story is from our listener, Rachel Hoare. The major one happened when I was 16. We had just recently bought a caravan for me to sleep in so that I could have my own space, and my sister had just gotten a Ouija board. Uh Uh-oh, here comes another Ouija board. I was into tarot and the spiritual at the time, but Ouija boards made me nervous. When she started talking about a spirit named Bob who had contacted her on the Ouija board, I just thought it was my sister making things up because she had a tendency at the time to make up stories. Around this time, I experienced my first issue in the caravan. I am unsure if it was connected to my sister's use of the Ouija or my own explorations into the spiritual that awakened what happened, but I began to see red eyes in the corner of the caravan. They would appear and stare at me, one blinking in and out. I would just look at it, and then it would go away. If you were wondering why I didn't escape inside, it was just as oppressive. Mom and Dad would wake up to strange noises in the night and feelings that they were being watched. The atmosphere inside the house just felt wrong. My sister also started getting depressed. I sometimes awoke to find my bed shaking. I would look out expecting it to be our dog to find that the dog was not under the caravan and instead was growling at something. I also awoke one night to see a green ghost girl head just floating in empty space. She was grinning and the head was just circling in the air. I was also having trouble with shadow figures at the time. They would be surrounding me and circling me and trying to touch me. I took to sleeping with the light on to try to keep them away. 
It got so bad, we brought in the local pastor. He attempted an exorcism. He took down pictures in my sister's room that he thought also might be fueling it and broke the Ouija board into pieces and burnt it all. He also went through the caravan and house with holy water. After this, the experiences stopped and I was no longer tormented by ghostly visitors and the issues in the house had stopped as well. The caravan ended up being dismantled by a family friend. I couldn't think of a more fitting fate for it. Also, one day we were driving past Sandgate Cemetery, one of the oldest cemeteries in Newcastle. Being a history lover, I always like to watch it as I go past. This particular time I saw a man standing by a grave with a shovel. At first I thought he might be a modern grave digger digging a grave, but then I looked again and saw the grave he was standing beside was old and crumbling. He also looked like he was wearing older style workman's clothes and was looking out on the highway as if he really didn't see it. As I tried to process it, he had vanished completely. Well, thank goodness they got rid of all of that stuff in the house. That would be absolutely terrifying. And Denise, you know, anytime we hear people who see the eyes of something, nine times out of ten, it's red. Red eyes. What? I wonder what that, that is. I don't know. It's like almost eyes into the hell or something. Who yeah, knows? because it's not a natural color. I mean, nobody has red eyes. Well, sometimes when I don't get much sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it's always glowing red eyes, yeah. which to me is very, very significant because it's like it's wanting you to know for sure. I'm not some animal out here. Like when we were camping out at my sister's farm and we mm-hmm. put the flashlight out into the forest and we'd see like five little shiny white eyes, uh, groupings of eyes out there. We knew there was a bunch of raccoons out there. Right. Or sometimes you'll see yellow eyes if you've got a deer by the side of the road or some other kind of animal. But you don't ever see glowing red eyes. But when you hear about some of these urban legend creatures that people happen upon, it's always red eyes. And now for, you know, Rachel, she's seeing these red eyes. Yeah, that would that would definitely creep me out big time. Indeed. And this next story is from listener Ginger. My Gettysburg adventures began in 2008. That year, the most impressionable experience I had was at Spangler Spring, where I met the spirit of a young boy, roughly age 14 years, who was lying wounded near a large rock. I didn't interact with him at the time, only saw him there and mentioned it to people I was with. In 2009, I returned to that place and again saw the boy at Spangler Spring, Only this time I started communicating with him. He helped me to see two soldiers on a hill above the rock who were watching for Union troops. The boy, a messenger of sorts, who was bringing news from one Union troop to another, was crossing the field nearby when one of the soldiers noticed him. Being bored with their task of sitting and waiting, the two men decided to fire upon the boy. He had no clue as to where the shots were coming from and ran in the direction he was heading. 
also the direction of the hill. It was at this point that he was shot near the chest and crouched down beside the rock, which is where he died. Every time I visit, his energy is still there. Also in 2009, while working in a group event, I was watching some members of the group wander a battlefield. Knowing that I'm intuitive to spirit energy, several women in the group asked me to check out a small rock outcropping near the edge of the site. As I approached one of the larger rocks and placed my foot on it, I felt what can only be described as a gunshot to the back of my thigh. I looked down at the rock and saw a young soldier on it. He told me about his parents, the battle, and how some of the men had dragged him to the edge of the field when he was shot in the thigh. I asked him why he was still there and didn't move on. His reply was, quote, Lady, where do you want me to go? I've been shot, end quote. This led me to evaluate how earthbound spirits view our concept of time. During a visit to an old property once used as a hospital during the Civil War, I connected with a patient there and felt the sensation of having my leg amputated. The property guide asked me to describe the man and others have witnessed him there. During another group weekend, not sure of the year, we were doing an EVP session at Spangler Spring. An older soldier came up to me and we started talking. I asked him his mother's name and then had him whisper it into the ears of the group. Most of them repeated a name very close to what he told me. That still gives me chills to think about it. I love being able to include my groups in such a personal spirit experience. I've seen soldiers walking on fields, intense battle, like it was happening at that very moment. Time slips, heard distant cannon fire, felt heavy energy waves, and so much more. Each time I'm there, something new is felt or seen. Gettysburg is an amazing and emotional place. Wow, Ginger has seen some amazing stuff. Absolutely, and felt some amazing things. However, I don't know that I would want to feel a gunshot to my leg or amputation. No, that would be horrid. Yeah, so it's just... Well, we want to go to Gettysburg, and we have talked on our show and among, and with each other about how many stories and how many hauntings it seems to carry. Of course, when we go, there won't be anything that happens. Although lately, that's one of the interesting things we were talking about the other evening, is that we used to tell people, no, 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 nothing will happen when we go on our ghost tours. You don't have to be afraid. But lately, we seem to be having things happen. So, And you just tempted the spirits with Gettysburg. So there exactly. you go. Here's what I've learned about bobbing for apples, and I want to start off actually with what I expected was that it would have some tie-in or relation to the dunking or the drowning of witches, because it was a Halloween-type activity, and I thought, you know, witches, Halloween... Dunking, bobbing, drowning, all involving water. I was entirely wrong, and I was very happy to be wrong. I think it's really fascinating. Now, granted, it may seem unhygienic given what we now know about communicable diseases, but the tradition for bobbing for apples actually came from what we believe to be Roman roots. Now, there is some debate about that out in the interwebs, but the idea of the root of the custom and its meaning have some consistencies. First is that there's no doubt that the apple itself played a significant role in the harvest festival that emerged as the Romans adopted Celtic and other rituals. And that when an apple is sliced in half, the seeds form a pentagram, which was seen as the symbol of fertility. And the apple 
itself was seen as representing Pomona, the goddess of fertility. So the process of bobbing for apples, either on a string or in a container of water, was actually seen as a foretelling for future marriages. And it was believed that the first person that would actually get a bite out of an apple would be the first one to get married. And this was really important because at the time, you have to remember, life expectancies were very, very short and family fortunes often depended on having enough family members to keep operations moving in family businesses. So this was kind of a survival rather than a entertainment purpose. They would bring in young adults and families from near and far for this fall festival. And the goal was that young people would marry early and have lots and lots of children. Now, granted, to my mind, sticking your face in a vat full of cold water to bite into an apple that 40 other people have also dunked into seems like perhaps one of the least romantic activities I could think of, as well as being one of the least sanitary, especially given that the timing of this festival would be at the end of October when everybody in the universe has some kind of cold and runny noses. To me, it's more like a cesspool, but I may be somewhat jaded on that. I just thought it was a very interesting and, quite frankly, very surprising results in my research and I really enjoyed the activity. That is fascinating. I would have never guessed that either. I would have thought that it had something to do with the same thing, how they would hold people underwater and if you floated, you were a witch. If you didn't, you were dead. So maybe holding somebody's head underwater would prove something else. So it it basically was kind of to figure out who was going to pair off with who. Yeah, well, and not only that, but it was there was a significant from from what I read, there was a significant amount of import that they actually put on these apples. That, you know, and there were other traditions where you would bob for the apple and then you would have to peel it and you would throw the peel over your shoulder. And if it formed a letter on the ground, that would be the first initial of the person you were going to marry. I mean, they took these apples really seriously. Wow. So it wasn't just an apple a day keeps the doctor away. It might find you a mate, too. <laughs> right. An apple, an apple a day gets you married. <laughs> you know, and I didn't even think about it because we don't do this as adults really anymore. And I don't I don't think I've been to a party that does bobbing for apples in ages. But the whole cesspool thing, don't think it ever occurred to us that how many other lips spit whatever, plus the makeup everybody's got all over their faces is going into that tub. Oh, plus, you know, sweat. Uh, it's gross. It is perhaps, I, sorry, I'm a mom <laughs> and gross. Kids are gross. This story is from Shelby and it's a very recent one. This weekend I had a strange experience. I own Dobermans and travel frequently to show and trial with them. This means staying in dog-friendly hotels. Both my dogs are well-traveled and used to the road trips and staying in strange places. This weekend I had a seminar and trial I was attending in Arlington, Vermont, so I booked my regular motel down there. We've stayed there many, many times, and both my girls are familiar and comfortable with the spot. I checked in Friday night, and the owner informed me she had turned the heat on for me so the room would be comfortable when I went in. So I drag all my stuff in, get my girl, and settle in to watch a little TV before bed. I notice the room is not comfortable. It's not even warm. This is a room in all my trips that I'd never stayed in before. I checked the thermostat on both the main heater and the one in the bathroom. Both are on high and producing heat, but the room is still freezing. It's so cold in there that I grabbed the blankets off the second bed and added them to mine and crawled beneath the covers in my jeans and sweater to watch TV. 
I'd given my girl a marrow bone to chew on, and she was on the bed with me chewing away, but I noticed she would stop chewing and would start watching the empty air. She would let out a small growl and then go back to chewing. Weird, but dogs are weird. About an hour later, I'd been texting a friend and went to snap a photo of Pippa, my dog, to send to her. Just before the photo took, I noticed an orb floating off to the left of Pippa. It didn't show up in the photo, and I chalked it up to a piece of dust. The room was still freezing. I finally put my phone down and started watching TV. It was then I started hearing what sounded like footsteps coming from above us. Whenever the footsteps would happen, Pippa would stop chewing, listen, and then look at me. I'd tell her she was a good girl and she'd go back to chewing. Not barking in a hotel is something that is hard for dogs, all those weird and complex sounds. It takes some training for a dog to be relaxed and comfortable in new spaces. But Pippa's a seasoned traveling girl, so I know she's pretty sound on not barking or growling. Around midnight, I turned off the TV and started to fall asleep. I either fall asleep or I'm just going to fall asleep when all of a sudden Pippa is standing on top of me growling. A deep, serious, I'm going to wreck your butt if you take one step closer to my mom growl. I, of course, angry with her for waking me, tell her to leave it and be quiet. She lays down but continues that low, I'm going to eat you growl. She's staring at a space just between the window and the door. I lay there watching her. She's tracking something. Watching something only she can see move about the room. She stands up again, putting herself between whatever she's watching and me. She's being trained in the sport of IPO and in personal protection, so I'm watching her body language and listening carefully to the tone of her growl. She's serious. This isn't a false alarm where she thinks she heard or saw something. This is the real deal stuff. My heart is beating wildly in my chest. What unknown threat is in my room to make my dog become this protective? I try to calm myself. First, because I don't want Pippa feeding off my fear. After all, it's clearly nothing, and me being calm will calm her. And second, I don't want to feed anything else that may be in the room with us. I take a couple slow breaths and calm myself. I reach out to Pippa and pet her, whispering soft, calming praise. She doesn't settle. She starts barking, jumps off the bed, and starts chasing, barking, and growling at something in the room. Great, I can't have this wild dog in a motel. She will be asked to leave. I give her a command to stop and come back to me. She backs slowly back to me, growling the entire way. I tell her to get on the bed and lay down. She jumps on the bed and stands over me once more, slowly watching the unknown threat. She stares at one space for what seems like forever, then slowly lowers herself to the bed, straight on top of me, of course. It's uncomfortable, but at least she's finally quiet. As I lay there freezing, Pippa's deep growls rumble through my body and the bed. I continue to take deep, calming breaths. I'm too amped to sleep now, but I still try for calm. This continued off and on till about 3 a.m. Finally, when I could take no more, I loudly stated, Get out. You are not welcomed here. Pippa cocked her head, looked at me sideways while trying to still watch the invisible threat. A minute passed, then two. Pippa harumphed, that silly dog side dogs make, and finally laid her head down on my feet. At 3.30 a.m., the room was so warm I had to take the extra blankets off the bed and turn the heat back down. When I woke in the morning and took Pippa out to relieve herself, I turned back to go inside and it clicked. There's no way someone above us could have been walking around last night. We were in a motel, single level. We only had one other guest in the room to the right of us. The next closest guest was three rooms down to the left. The following night, I got back to the room after a long day of working dogs. 
The room, though on the cool side, was pleasant and warmed quickly once I turned the heat up. Pippa stayed on the bed all night and never made one peep all night, even when other guests bumped, walked, or talked loudly, or their TVs could quietly be heard. Not a single peep, growl, or woof. No echoing footsteps were heard again, and we both slept peacefully undisturbed. Whatever was in the room with us Friday night must have thankfully took my suggestion and checked out. Oh, wow. And that's what I told her when I read that. It's just like, just wow. I can't even imagine. That would have completely freaked me out. Exactly. And Shelby said that it was pretty funny because she just happened to be listening to one of our podcasts where we were talking about someone going back to sleep after having a ghostly experience. And we wondered, how do they do that? I believe, I know we made mention of that when we were talking about our ghost story for Casey for last Halloween. Right. And we were like, how did you go back to sleep when a ghost screams in your face? And I just, we've never been able to understand that. Here she is, you know, her dog's going nuts. There's some axe murderer she can't see in a room, probably. (laughs) And she's like, calming breaths, calming breaths, (laughs) deep breaths. I'm like down at the manager's office at one o'clock in the morning, banging on the door going, you get me a different room or get me a shotgun, one or the other. Because a shotgun would work on a ghost? Yeah. Cool. (laughs) It would at least make me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) So you can shoot at invisible things. All of a sudden there's all these holes. I know. (laughs) Sorry about the damage. <laughs> it was the dog. She chewed on the walls. Oh, I don't know. I tell you, that takes some bravery to stay in a room like that. And she really hung on for a long time before she finally said, you know what? Get out. But, you know, that's the main thing, because we've discussed this in the past, that fear seems to feed whatever these entities are a lot of the time, especially if they are of the dark persuasion. I think they feed off of fear, and that's why they enjoy scaring us. So she really did do the right thing by trying to stay calm and finally by telling it just to get out. You take the upper hand and tell it to get the heck out. You're not welcome here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one thing we always do after we go on a ghost tour, no matter how fun they are or even that Boston one that we did that was kind of silly. We always say when we get in the car, if there's anything with us, you're not allowed to come with us. You have to stay wherever you are here. You're not welcome to be with us. Yep. Of course, we were watching... One of those, did you hear that, shows the other day, and they kept telling the spirit to leave the girl alone, and it just kept scratching her more and more. So, Do you remember the location that we were watching? Oh, yeah, it's the one we did. Um, <laughs> um, 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 oh, shoot. This was on, they were doing the a... The Charleston Jail. Yeah, they were doing a Ghost Hunters Marathon, and I said, oh, Denise, look, they're doing the Charleston Old Jail. Let's sit down and watch. So it was kind of cool to get to see the inside of something that we had talked about. Right. And, and stuff, it but, looks like it's pretty intense there because I don't think this girl was fooling because she wasn't one of their investigators. She was just a crew member and she was getting scratched all over the place. And they kept telling the, the ghost or the entity, stop doing that. You can't touch my friend. This And it kept doing it. I'm like, okay, it's pretty clear that it's showing you contempt I'll do whatever and, I want in contempt. Yeah. And so at that point, I would have said, we're done. Yeah, she left and then she went back in. I thought, wow, you're crazy. Yeah. If something's scratching me, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back Well, because it was definitely showing that it was basically the entity's way of telling them to kiss their, kiss its butt. Yeah. Because they would say, you can't touch it, and they would, it would just scratch her again. So that would, I would have been gone. Exactly. Okay, our next story is from Kat. 
She says, for the stories, I wanted to tell you about two houses I've lived in that have been haunted. The first is actually the house I'm living in now. My mom and I are both convinced we have a ghost. Both of us have heard footsteps when we've been upstairs and there was no one else there. My grandmother actually almost called the police once because she heard someone walking up the stairs and she was home alone. We've also had a few lights that seem to come on by themselves. The strangest thing, though, is that things will disappear and then reappear after you ask the house for them back. One time, my grandmother hung her coat on the back of the door, and when she went to get it, it was gone. We looked everywhere in the house and couldn't find it. Later that night, my mom asked the ghost to please bring it back, and the next morning when my grandmother woke up, it was hanging on the door again. We've had the exact same thing happen with shoes and jewelry, so we think the ghost is of a woman. She seems to be pretty nice, and we try to be as respectful as we can. When we ask for things back, we usually offer up another item as an alternative, and that usually does the trick. The next house is my stepmother's, and it's in northwest Pennsylvania. It was built in the 1850s as a guest house for a bigger estate, and was later passed on to a second son in the family. It has a lot of quirky things like a bank safe in the basement, servant stairs, and what we call the ballroom in the attic. It isn't exactly what you'd think of as a ballroom. It's a large room that takes up a majority of the attic with a stage off to one side. When the family would throw parties, that's usually where they'd hold them. When my stepmother first moved in, my youngest stepbrother was about three. After a few days of living there, he dragged my stepmom upstairs to introduce her to the people who lived in the attic. He took her upstairs and started naming people, describing what they looked like, what they were wearing, and first names. He told her that the people upstairs were really nice and wanted to meet the new lady of the house. My stepmom went to the historical society for the small town they lived in to see if she could find any of the names of the previous occupants. And crazily enough, a lot of them matched. She showed a picture and a portrait of one of the daughters in the family to my little brother, and he recognized the woman and told his mom her name. I lived there for a few summers about 10 years later, and I swear sometimes I would wake up at night and could just barely hear music and footsteps coming from up above me. And then she saved her scariest story for last. This one happened to be my grandmother about 35 years ago. She was working as a librarian, and on Wednesdays she didn't have to be at work until 10.30, So she'd usually sleep in. One day she was laying in bed, kind of half asleep, when she heard boots walking down the hallway. She assumed it was my grandfather, so she didn't open her eyes when her bedroom door opened. She says she felt someone sit down on the bed next to her, and then all of a sudden there was this weight on her chest, like someone was sitting on her, and she felt hands around her neck. She tried to fight whoever it was off, and then she opened her eyes, and there was nothing there, and the choking stopped. They were renting that house, so my grandmother made them move out at the end of the month. She found out from one of her old neighbors after they moved out that one of the previous owners had hung himself in the attic. She feels like it was something demonic, but my family thinks it may have been a hallucination she had as she was waking up. Either way, it's a strange story. All of those stories were strange. Now, the helpful ghost that brings you lost items that it actually helped to lose and then brings back to you is all right. But wow. Yeah, the other ones 
I, I mean, it, I would just be creeped out. You know, here, here's your little brother knows all the names of all these different people. Although that room sounds very, very cool. I would totally set up a workout room up there. <laughs> yes, you would. And then, but the scary one where it was choking her, I would have moved out probably before the end of the month. I would have slept on the curb. Yeah, it just always amazes me when you have something that can attack you like that. It's like you can't see it. That's the one thing the listeners are probably getting a feeling from for me is that that is the thing that probably fascinates me the most of any experience out there is how something can not be seen but still be material enough that it can hurt you, that it can touch you, that it can be there and you can trip over it or feel it, but you can't see it. That's just amazing to me. Yeah. And maybe it's because whenever I'm asked what superpower I'd like to have, it'd be invisibility. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm like, how can I figure out to do that? Yeah, maybe that's what it is. It's just a a curiosity more than a fascination. Well, fascination, same thing. You're just trying to figure out how it works. Yeah. So it just, I don't know. That's the one thing that fascinates me the most about this, even more than them being able to somehow get their voice on the magnetic or digital tape where we can't hear it, but it picks it up and records it as like in an EVP. That doesn't fascinate me nearly as much as how something can have some kind of physicality, even if you can't see it. Yeah. How does it do that? I don't know. That's why we do this podcast, because we're curious and it just, you know, it keeps us going with like, what is all of this? Exactly. Have a story here from Carrie. Hi, ladies. I have a story to offer up for your Halloween cast. I experienced a bit of the supernatural back when I was a college student at New York City's Hunter College. Even though the school is on 68th Street in Manhattan's Upper East Side, our dormitories were located 40 blocks downtown on 26th Street and 1st Avenue. I had just begun my term there when I, with two friends, struck up a conversation with the maintenance man for our building. He started telling us the building's creepy history. Back in the 30s and 40s, the building that was now our dorm was the psych ward for Bellevue Hospital. It notoriously housed the criminally insane. Some of its more famous inmates include Mark David Chapman, who would go with our John Lennon podcast, Edie Sedwig, and Norman Mailer. The maintenance man walked us through the abandoned wings of the building, explaining each room and painting the very eerie picture of what used to go on there. I didn't experience any supernatural presence while on the tour, but in the months that followed, something strange continually occurred. I had a shoebox-sized alarm clock that sat on my dresser in my dorm. Every so often, that alarm clock would suddenly flick on and start blaring music. Sometimes I'd be awake when this happened, sometimes asleep. But always, I'd try and try to turn it off with no success. It even stayed on as I unplugged it a couple of times. Now, I, too, have a healthy bit of skepticism. I investigated all sorts of possible triggers that may have set off my clock, but it was inexplicable. There was a switch to turn the clock from off-on radio alarm, and that switch always remained in the off position. On top of that, I had that clock 10 years before my stay in those dorms and again for three years after. Never in those years did the clock act the way it had while in the ghostly halls of the Bellevue Hospital psych ward. Whoa. 
Here again, we have another clock turning itself on and blaring music. I think it's time to get rid of the clocks and just stick with dogs. <laughs> I know. I told uh, Carrie when I would read this story when she sent it, I'm like, once you tell me you've unplugged something and it's still going, that pretty much sells you on something is not right here. Things don't usually stay on. Even when you have the radio alarm clocks that have the batteries in them, the batteries are backup for the actual time to stay on when it loses power. It doesn't keep the radio on. Oh, that's true. At least not that I'm aware of. So that's just weird. Well, and for it to turn on by itself anyway when it's not on and then work completely fine right before and after, that leaves a little bit of proof there, I would think. And we have this final story from David. David, you stayed at one of the most beautiful hotels I think we have in Denver, the Brown Palace Hotel with your wife. And there's been rumors that it's haunted. And I guess you can probably tell us, uh, yeah, there's something weird going on there. Uh, Yeah, mine's a little probably more extraordinarily weird than most. Uh, Most people would probably see um, apparitions or hear sounds or have brief unexplained encounters, whether that be in their kind of public space, open public, or kind of in their private rooms. But mine was a little more extraordinary because it was witnessed by my wife, but in a different way than I experienced it. Well, I start that's off weird. by saying that I'm visually impaired, so I have no visual reference as to kind of what it looked like or what visual point of cue as to where it was in the room, uh, whatever. But uh, we stayed at a suite called the Top of the Brown. And the Top of the Brown is obviously at the top of the building, so it's in the larger residence units. They used to have these rooms that were at book out for apartments, I guess, in the early 20th century. It might have been a feature of the hotel when it first opened, I'm not sure. But then they later converted them to regular suite rooms, and that's where we stayed. We stayed in one of those suites. And so my wife and I kind of woke up at different times when this happened, but what I experienced was I was coming out of REM sleep, and I just remember kind of getting this image of a woman middle-aged, Like you mentioned in some of your past podcasts, sometimes people want to present the best image of themselves. So she seemed middle-aged to me, a white woman, and kind of sandy, uh, blonde, brownish hair, some red in it. I could see in the past, I lost my vision when I was 17, so my brain still retains the ability to dream in color and vision. That's kind of weird. Hmm. She was holding out a phone to me, and then she had another phone to her ear, and I was reluctant to take it. And then she shook her head at me, like, no, no, it's okay, take take the phone, right? There wasn't any speaking going on in the dream, but when I took the phone and I put it to my ear, kind of in this dream, I just overwhelmingly got this sense of kind of shaking a little bit while I tell you this. I got this uh, really loud voice in my head, so it's almost as if it wasn't an outside sound. This was coming from inside my head, and it said, who are you? And are you from here? And those were coming in a very like distant kind of um, almost like a like a uh, stereotypical ghost way. It was echoey, and it was seeming like it was coming from from far away. But it was very loud. And I do still remember that those two questions: Who are you? And are you from here? And it just kind of rattled me to be fully awake. And when I popped out of that, um, I didn't see anything. You know, obviously I can't see very well, so I didn't see anything. 
But then I just kind of shook it off, rolled over, and went back to sleep. And then I'll tell my wife's side of the story. She kind of woke up maybe 10, 15 minutes later. And um, I didn't tell her any of this until the next morning. And that's when we kind of cross-verified. And it's like, she's like, yeah, I kind of... She went to the bathroom like, you know, 10, 15 minutes later. She was coming back from the bathroom. And you can see a little bit of the room layout in the pictures that I sent you. Mm -hmm. There's a chair that sits by those three large windows. She said she could see a figure, kind of a person, and it wasn't like an apparition. It was just like a like a blob of like an object that was obscuring light. Light was bending around, and so it was like at the height of a person, and it was almost kind of like a you know when you get kind of distorted water bubbles where the light bends around it, Mm -hmm. and she got that phenomenon, and she she was looking at it. She was staring at it for like a minute, and then she got really scared. My wife doesn't like anything kind of haunted, ghostly, kind of like kind of like your wife. Where <laughs> she's like, uh, "Don't tempt that. No, I'm getting out of here." <laughs> and so she like kind of flung herself in the bed and rolled over. Was like, "Okay, I'm I'm going to pretend this thing doesn't exist." And and then she kind of peeked out from under the covers. It was coming towards her. Uh, it was kind of coming closer to her. And then she kind of threw herself back under her pillow and was like, oh, I'm done with this. I'm going to sleep. I told her about my weird experience. And she's like, you know, yeah, I, I definitely saw something. And then I told her, you know, what I experienced and told her about, like, the phones. And there's actually, in the top of the brown suite, there's two phones. It's mm-hmm. kind of weird. Now, when you <laughs> saw this woman in your mind in the dream, was she in your room? No. It was almost like she was coming from... It was, it was weird. It was almost like a like a picture. I still remember like getting a picture of her somehow being outside and in red, like like a casual, like a red jacket. You know, it was casual wear. It's, it's, it was really bizarre because I don't really remember her being in period clothing like you like you mm-hmm. guys say that you know most period clothing is in the in the nineteenth century and uh, before. But almost like she was wearing casual clothes. Bizarre. More recent, um, yeah. Yeah, more recent clothing. Like, and I, I wouldn't even try to date it, but it was more modern clothing. It didn't seem like the dream itself and and the entity in my room. They were definitely connected, but like the picture in my mind, it seemed like almost like she was outside or something, or she was, you know, setting that she chose maybe was was uh, a little different. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that aspect of it, but definitely use of the two phones. That was kind of strange. This is by far the strangest story I have ever heard. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, uh, yeah. And we're definitely going to stay again. I mean, we'll definitely go back to the Brown Palace and uh, we'll stay. And, you know, I I just, I don't know if I could have engaged with that woman in conversation, but she, it's almost like she took over, like, my entire mind for a couple seconds because it was just that loud. Like, the, the voice was very clear and loud. And her voice intonation sounded like she was a middle-aged woman. Like, it wasn't an older person or it wasn't a younger person. It was just, like, a middle-aged woman. And I don't know how she's connected to the hotel or, I don't know. Well, I'll see yeah, if I can find out some information about somebody who would be about, you know, uh, an, not an elderly, but middle-aged woman who may have died there more recently. What's amazing yeah. about this is that you're visually impaired and you seem to see her because she was in your yeah. mind and your wife couldn't yeah. see her. That's, wow. Yeah, my wife also saw her. <laughs> she didn't get any of the sounds or anything, you know, like not nothing auditory because it was it was um, inside my head. Yeah. 
right? Have you ever got the feeling of like concentrating really hard and your consciousness focuses on your forehead? Mm-hmm. You get that tingle. It's exactly what I felt. And oh. it was just like, yeah, my voice was very loud. Not angry or affirming or accusatory, but just more like curious. Wow. <laughs> like, hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, like, I want to talk to you. Maybe it was a lonely soul. Never know. What I loved is your wife used the uh, armor that most of us like to use, the covers. If you put the covers on, it will it will protect oh, yeah. you from anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't matter that it's a possibly a multidimensional being. Like, those covers are going to shield you. And it doesn't matter if you're two years old or you're 50, 60, the covers over the head is what everybody uses. <laughs> well, would I do the same thing? Yes, I would. Oh, yes. Why don't we go ahead and share the history of the cauldron. Absolutely. And this one is brought to you by research assistant April Rogers Crick. A cauldron is a large pot-bellied kettle with an arc-shaped handle. They're used for cooking and or boiling over an open fire. Most modern cauldrons are made from cast iron. Throughout history, cauldrons have been made of many different metals. A cauldron dating back to the first century BCE and made of silver was found in Denmark in 1891. It is believed that it was made by Thracians, but people remain confused on the issue because it does contain Celtic pictures on the plates on the sides of the pot. You can find many references to cauldrons in mythology. In the Welsh tale of the cauldron of Durnwich the Giant, the cauldron is said to be able to tell the difference between brave men and cowards. The cauldron would not boil the meat of a coward, but would boil quickly if the meat belonged to a brave man. Norse mythology tells of Odin, who was said to have received wisdom and intuitiveness from a cauldron. Celtic legends and mythology give a rather varied history to the cauldron. It has been called the cup or cauldron of Sirdwin and was used in rituals as an emblem of divine inspiration and abundance. Celts also saw the cauldron as a magical tool of regeneration for the gods. Considered to be a sacred door to the summer land, it was seen as a way of thanking the gods for an abundant crops in the fields, the abundance of water and numerous flocks in the area, and was a way to ensure honorable passage to reincarnation or summer land. They saw the cauldron as representing change, renewal, dedication, resurrection, reincarnation, inspiration, transmutation, transformation, and abundance. Whew, say that a few times. (laughs) In Western culture, cauldrons have largely fallen out of use as cooking vessels and gained an association with witchcraft, a cliché popularized by various works of fiction, such as Shakespeare's play Macbeth. In fiction, witches often prepare their potions in a cauldron. Also, in Irish folklore, a cauldron is said to be where leprechauns keep their gold and treasure. I often wondered how the cauldron moved from being something that you would basically put over the stove all day to cook your stew, your soup. This is what they used to do a lot of. And I remember when I think we went through, you know, one of these historical places and they talked about how they would cook stuff. And this was hundreds of years ago. And they would just throw stuff into it. So it was always, always boiling over the fire. But throughout the week, they'd throw whatever happened to come out of the garden. Then if they did some hunting, whatever meat they had, and it would just sit and stew for days and days, and they would just take a little bit and eat it and then keep adding stuff to the pot. It was just always simmering with good stuff. Yeah, how that moved to being a cauldron where witches would make their brews. 
<laughs> you know, the thing I thought about is when we were talking about the Salem witch trials, we talked about that they would make tinctures and use herbs and things like that. And so it was mostly a natural healing kind of medicinal type stuff they were doing that people thought they were making potions and things. So I wonder if it was basically that they had a cauldron in their kitchen that they were maybe making a tincture out of. It could and be. that's where they got the idea for them making their potions. Well, it could be because I'm sure a lot of those, I know when you're making things and trying to, to draw the medicinal things out, it takes a long process. So it's not like you just go, oh, here it is, you know. And so mm-hmm. they would have had to boil it for a while. So maybe. I sure wish we could find one of those cauldrons that belong to a leprechaun. Full of gold? <laughs> yeah. No kidding, because then you wouldn't be working and you'd be researching for our show more. Yeah, we'd be having a show every day if that happened, I tell you that. And now this tale from AmericanFolklore.net. And it can be found in the book Spooky Pennsylvania by Essie Slosser. Susan and Ned were driving through a wooded, empty section of highway. Lightning flashed. Thunder roared. The sky went dark in the torrential downpour. We'd better stop, said Susan. Ned nodded his head in agreement. He stepped on the brake, and suddenly the car started to slide on the slick pavement. They plunged off the road and slid to a halt at the bottom of an incline. Pale and shaking, Ned quickly turned to check if Susan was all right. When she nodded... Ned relaxed and looked through the rain-soaked windows. I'm going to see how bad it is, he told Susan and went out into the storm. She saw his blurry figure in the headlight walking around the front of the car. A moment later, he jumped in beside her, soaking wet. The car's not badly damaged, but we're wheel deep in mud, he said. I'm going to have to go for help. Susan swallowed nervously. There would be no quick rescue here. He told her to turn off the headlights and lock the doors until he returned. Axe, murder, hollow. Although Ned hadn't said the name aloud, they both knew what he had been thinking when he told her to lock the car. This was the place where a man had once taken an axe and hacked his wife to death in a jealous rage over an alleged affair. Supposedly, the axe-wielding spirit of the husband continued to haunt this section of the road. Outside the car, Susan heard a shriek, a loud thump, and a strange gurgling noise. But she couldn't see anything in the darkness. Frightened, she shrank down into her seat. She sat in silence for a while, and then she noticed another sound. It was a soft sound, like something being blown by the wind. Suddenly, the car was illuminated by a bright light. An official-sounding voice told her to get out of the car. Ned must have found a police officer. Susan unlocked the door and stepped out of the car. As her eyes adjusted to the bright light, she saw it. Hanging by his feet from the tree next to the car was the dead body of Ned. His bloody throat had been cut so deeply that he was nearly decapitated. The wind swung his corpse back and forth so that it thumped against the tree. Susan screamed and ran toward the voice in the light. As she drew close, she realized the light was not coming from a flashlight. Standing there was the glowing figure of a man with a smile on his face and a large, solid, and definitely real axe in his hands. She backed away from the glowing figure until she bumped into the car. Playing around when my back was turned, the ghost whispered, stroking the sharp blade of the axe with his fingers. You've been very naughty. The last thing she saw was the glint of the axe blade in the eerie, incandescent light. Well, Denise, I think that was a pretty awesome Halloween special we've put together there. And you know how we were able to do it? Because of our listeners. Indeed. There was 11 of you guys who gave us some really creepy, great stories to share with everybody else. I hope they have you all spooked now. You're going to have to pull those covers up after you get done scaring the kitties this evening. We'd love to hear from all of you guys. What did you do for Halloween? 
Yes, we'd love to hear that. But I will tell you, just reading the stories for the show when we were taping, when I had to take the dogs out, I was a little creeped out just to go out in the dark. So I know they definitely creeped me out. I know. I kept glancing down the hallway because it's dark down the hallway there. <laughs> I'm like, is there anything at the end of the hallway? Are there red eyes, radios, growling dogs? Like, what's going on? <laughs> And before we close out this show, we want to welcome some people to the Spooktacular crew. Elora, welcome. I hope I say this right. Yale, it's Y-A-E-L. Sarah, Laura, and Jeff, welcome to all of you. Thanks for joining us over there. If you haven't already done so, please come on over. We share all kinds of great stuff over there. And I want to share Cynthia's comments over at our fan page. She said, just discovered the podcast earlier this month and have slowly been binge listening my way through all the episodes. Absolutely in love with the show. Thanks, ladies, for hours of entertainment and making my day more spooktacular. Well, thank you, Cynthia, for making our day spooktacular with that wonderful comment. And Tracy commented over on our post about our podcast when we went to Nashville Dang, I wish I would have found this podcast sooner. I would have joined you on a ghost tour. Love this episode. Just playing catch up while I'm at work. Got to this episode tonight. I did giggle a little bit hearing you pronounce the hermitage, LOL. Well, as everyone knows, Hooked on Phonics is part of our charm here. And uh, I don't recall how we pronounced it in that show, but I'm sure it was something like hermitage. I was going for more of a French sound or something. I don't know what I was doing, but I believe the correct pronunciation is hermitage. If I've said that wrong, you're all getting another laugh. And Tracy, I know we'll be back in the Nashville area, so we look forward to doing a ghost tour with you someday in the future. And we got a couple of five-star reviews over at iTunes. Auntie Likes History. Found a favorite. I love this podcast. Well put together, humorous and intelligent. History and the paranormal are the perfect mix. We couldn't agree more, obviously. And Theme Park 78, a great show. I thoroughly enjoy listening to the History Goes Bump podcast. It's educational as well as entertaining. I'm not sure why some people are giving these ladies a hard time with writing bad reviews, but I absolutely love to listen to the show. The two ladies have very beautiful voices and appear to be extremely intelligent on both history and ghosts and hauntings. Keep up the good work, and I hope to meet you guys when you come to the Atlanta area again. Well, we're in Atlanta quite a bit because Denise is the regional director for Taekwondo down in this area. So she has a school that she goes up to there in Kennesaw quite a bit. So we will definitely be in the Atlanta area again. And we've been wanting to do a ghost tour there. So I see that in our future on my little crystal ball here. Ha ha ha. Thank you for those reviews. Greatly appreciate those. If you haven't given us a review for the show, please consider doing so. And if you do, as you know, your review will get read on the show. So we hope you guys really enjoyed that. We can't wait to bring you number three next year. We're not going anywhere. And of course, you know, on this show, it's Halloween all year long. Yes, it is. So we're looking forward to bringing you some more great shows. But as for right now, you guys have a very happy and safe Halloween. You take care now. Bye-bye. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.